Hi and welcome to Off Book, a new podcast by the Young Vic Theatre. My name is Daniel and today we're talking to the director, Joe Hill Gibbons, most recently director of Measure for Measure and associate artist here at the Young Vic. Thanks for coming in, Joe. Pleasure, absolute pleasure. You, as a child, growing up, what exposure to to the arts or to theatre did you have and did you sort of, from an early age, think that this is something that you wanted to be a part of? Well, I, I, guess, I, I guess I got into it mainly through school. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember going to pantos with my parents when I was younger, but it's not like uh, they were they were great uh, the- theatricals <laughs> or anything. You know, it's not like we this were... This is in Surrey. We, yeah, it's yeah. in Surrey. We, we weren't a, a family of, you know, travelling players or whatever. <laughs> but no, it was mainly through school, you know. I mean, starting off, as you do at school, being in stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and being a kind of probably precocious, annoying show-off and being in plays. Do you remember what you were in? Do you remember what these plays were? I was very disappointed only to be cast as third shepherd oh, in, no. in the nativity. I've heard of that story. And I wonder, I wonder whether this is, you know, a driving force <laughs> <laughs> in my career ever since. It, it was more at uh, secondary school, actually, being in, in stuff that really, um, really, uh, you know, got me excited about things. And I had a brilliant uh, drama teacher called Jenny Haynes, uh-huh. who was really inspiring and really fun and she and I guess in a way many ways she got me kind of more interested in directing and she would talk to us and work out ideas with us and so in a way I guess she was the first director that I was ever really kind of uh, I ever really encountered or got kind of um, so uh, she was inspired by your sort of your first mentor then in your your journey towards being a director definitely, would you say? definitely yeah for sure and she it was really great she came to see uh, measure Measure when mm-hmm. it was on the end of last year oh, brilliant. and funnily enough there's a guy called Tom Eden uh-huh. who played Pompey and oh, you yeah. remember Pompey yeah. and the cap and the glasses and the, you know, the American accent and, and Tom and I went to school together Oh, wow. So Tom and I were in plays together, oh. and then we made a show together at the Young Vic, and so it was. We were kind of really proud and happy when our drama teacher came to see it. Oh, that's so uh, great! Yeah, it was that's fun. So brilliant. So, do you, have you gone back to your school since then? No. Both, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I haven't. I haven't well, actually. Your drama teacher. No, 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 no she's, she's 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 still going. But okay. Um, yeah. Okay, so that she's number one. What are your other um, creative influences then? Growing up as you did uh, in Surrey, and then University of Manchester. I did. Yeah. Great? And yeah, you yeah, did that's theater right. there. Yeah, did drama. Yeah, was there was Manchester a, a sort of a, a an environment which which nurtured your creativity? Yeah, I mean, I mean, in some respects it did, and in some respects I was just doing, you know, what students do, <laughs> <laughs> getting pissed and not turning up for lectures. I remember, I remember going to one lecture on. Alan Aikborn and I had to leave during the le- the lecture to throw up outside, which is no no reflection on the content <laughs> yes, of the lecture. If you're listening, Alan, that, yeah, that's, that's, it's not like that, Alan. It was, uh, it was I was just so hungover. Um, and, you know, funnily enough, actually, for me, the thing that really stimulated me the most at university wasn't actually the course mm. so much as making work outside of the course. We made a lot of shows with the drama society, and um, and that that was where we really sort of got our kicks and tried stuff out and I want to know more about how you became a director how um, your course and how your degree led you to where you are now what yeah sure well I went to a meeting at Manchester University and Alan Marcus who was one of the film tutors there 
He said, if you're thinking about what to write your dissertation about, maybe think of writing it about the, the specific field that you want to go into. Maybe think about doing it so you can meet or interview people that you admire or want to work with. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I went to that meeting and I'm glad he said that because that was a big help because when I was at Manchester, so I was there 96 to 99, I was really in that period and in the years before, which is to say sixth form, I was really obsessed with the Royal Court. Mm-hmm. That was really, you know, that was when Stephen Daldry was running the Royal Court and there were great productions of things like The Weir and Mojo and Blasted and the Martin McDonough plays and the... Um, Sarah Kane plays and Mark Ravenhill and and so I wrote my dissertation about the Royal Court so I wrote letters to people as a student and I interviewed I interviewed Nick Heitner about Martin McDonough I went to Nick Heitner's house (laughs) and I interviewed Ian Rickson in his office which was then at the Duke of York's I interviewed Graham Wybrow the literary manager then of the Royal Court but they were also kind of keen to to help me, I think, because they were, I think, pleased that there was a kind of, you know, young person who was kind of getting off mm. on their work and what was what was happening there. And so when I graduated, I sent my dissertation to a few of them and I sent my dissertation to Graham Wybrow and he really liked it and he invited me to come into the literary office um, which was really good I'm glad he really liked it I mean because basically he wrote my conclusion I just turned the tape recorder on and he just he just basically, basically word for word uh, what he said so Graham got me in as a a script reader. Oh, wow, that's so great. So you started off as a, an external script reader where you go in and you yeah. pick up a stack of scripts and you yeah. read them at home and then you bring them back in. And then I became an internal script reader. Uh-huh. So I was working in the office at the Royal Court, um, which was so exciting and nerve-wracking for oh, me. Wow. You know, because, because it's a big... Like, you know, when you work in theatre, you get really used to it now and you take it for granted but that kind of threshold mm. between being front of house and then being backstage I remember at, you know, early days going to the Royal Court and being in the lift at the Royal Court <laughs> and being like I'm backstage <laughs> at the Royal Court this is incredible and then I be- uh, became an assistant director there but of course you know I'd already met Ian and I assisted Ian twice and that was great and I assisted Dominic Cook twice that was great and assisted James McDonald. Uh, on the revival of Blasted. So, so yeah, that's kind of where I started off at the Royal Court. And then they gave me a production in the Young Writers Festival. So I did a Young Writers play as part of a double bill upstairs. And then the other important things um, was I won an award called the um, James Mingus Kitchen Trust Award, mm-hmm. or the JMK Trust Award, which is a really, really important award, I think, for supporting young directors. So you can apply for that award and you can say, I... Uh, I want to do this play and you have to say what your ideas are about how to do the play and if you win the award um, but then you got money to and you got a slot at um, Battersea Arts Centre and so I did a production my first professional production through that award and then I got to know David Lan at the Young Vit because David had worked at the Royal Court sort of a couple of years before I got there but he was still had a lot of contacts with people at the Royal Court and was aware that I was a director who was assisting a lot there and I met David and then um, started to work and, and Sue Emmis as well here at the Young Vic and, and started to work over here, yeah. And those very early days and when you were at Manchester and then uh, the beginnings at the Royal Court which is sort of 99, early noughties, is that right? That's sort of the, yeah. the age. Um, 
that's a really interesting time, isn't it? Because you've got Britpop, you've got people being really excited, you've got m- some money in the arts. Tony Blair was likeable. Yeah, uh, did, yeah, remember that. Everyone was yeah. optimistic. Yeah. Did that inform your process as well? That you know that was a really exciting time, wasn't it? Because people were optimistic about the future and about the creative industries in 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 Britain. Did yeah, that... I think so. There was, I I, I don't know, people people around at the time. Or, or working professionally at the time would know much better about whether it was all this sort of so-called cool Britannia thing was <laughs> like a load of shit or whether it was um, was was culturally somehow important that there was a new sort of confidence and the, you know the, mm. the, the, it was the visual arts as well wasn't it you mm. know the sense the Saatchi sensation exhibition and the, what do they call them young British YBA, YBA. Yeah, yeah that was a, that was a massive thing so maybe maybe there was a bit of that but that's never trickled into you your your work perhaps subconsciously that 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 period being there when you were kind of cutting your teeth yeah you know i remember going to see at guildford odeon reservoir docks Mm -hmm. because i must have not been 18 yet or just 18 and there was this film and everyone's saying it's really violent (laughs) and it's really and i I certainly remember i remember that and i certainly remember going to see pulp fiction so that was another thing, uh, you know. Tarantino was very ubiquitous at that time, and his mm. his playfulness with form and his often uh, there's a kind of tone in his work which is often sometimes ironic, but also sometimes just more cruel and um, detached in a way, or not so sentimental. I think those films have still influence me. And what about now? What about today? Who are your creative influences? Who are the people that you you see as as helping to shape your future work. You mean different uh, artists? Yeah. Well, I suppose, I suppose, in terms of other directors, I love to see work from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel kind of lucky that uh, to live in an age of um, you know EasyJet and Ryanair and which, which sounds strange. Cheap networks are other cheap flights are available. As well, well, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Because <laughs> yeah. it, it's great because you can go to European cities. Mm-hmm. For I mean, I know it's like a cliche, but I mean it's true. You can get to Berlin or Hamburg or Amsterdam much cheaper than you can get to Cardiff or Edinburgh. So uh, I, that a lot of my influence comes from seeing work uh, abroad, actually. And then more and more, you know, that, that work is coming to London. I mean, it's, it, it, it's uh, mm. productions visit the Barbican the whole yeah. time, and it's been a big thing at the Young Vic, hasn't it, to bring over international or European directors, not just to bring their productions over, but to, to make work with them to make new productions with them and so you know you know having Ivo van Hove um here at the Young Vic or or Luke Bondi or you know Benedict Andrews or is is really exciting Mm -hmm. Joe I've got a question for you that I asked um Jazz Woodcock Stewart who was your assistant director on Measure for Measure did she did she dish (laughs) some dirt she called you a great mind actually um well there we are what can I say let's let's stop there you know it's not going to get better than that but in terms of dealing with classic text that you might learn at school. So when you did uh, Measure for Measure, and everybody knows that story, and then they see your version, and, and your version is different to how they might have pictured it in their heads, is that something which worries you, or is that a really exciting prospect and opportunity? No, that, that's, actually, that's actually part of the, the, the fun of it, or mm. the pleasure of it, I think. I mean, what, more what's scary with classic plays is if the production is rubbish, 
um, you can't really blame it on the player. You can't say, well, that, you know, that's, you know. Yeah, who's this Will Shakespeare? Yeah, yeah, yeah. what can I do with this material, you know? Um, uh, you know, however hard the play is, it still will still be your fault. And no, I think the, well, this is the thing. I mean, with something like Measure for Measure, it's a good example. But I guess it's something maybe that I aspire to do whenever I work on a classic play is that, you know, a lot, a lot of the way people, when people respond to it, they say, oh, well, this is a new way of doing it. Or, I mean, if they hate it, they might say it's a rubbish way of doing it. But if they like it, they might say, hey, this is a new way of doing it or a different way of doing it. Or, And often sort of people say, I like what you did to the play. I like what you added to the play. But, you know, really, that's not, that's not really the way I think about it and look at it. If the production surprises people, the kind of pleasure for me is, is kind of going, yeah, isn't the play surprising? It's not like we're adding stuff to it it's like we're mining what's already there and expressing what's already there and so although some of the ideas may uh, seem slightly offbeat or strange in the way Measure for Measure is presented it's because the play is so crazy (laughs) and so extreme and all the techniques we use to bring it to the stage whether it's you know inflatable sex dolls or video cameras or whatever all come from ideas in the play really so the the audience themselves and and what their their preconceived expectations might be that never sort of trickles into your approach to your work well you make it for an audience Mm -hmm. and you hope that it's really going to grip and excite and stimulate an audience you know when i go and see a film or a play i really don't want the person who's made it to have thought, oh, well, we better make it easy for Joe or what will Joe understand or what will we not understand or we better not do this because he might not like it. You know, the, the work that, that's really exciting, isn't it, is when you get uh, an artist or artists who make something that's really their expressive of the way they see the world. And I suppose I suppose I try to look at the play and and express that in the way that I see best to the audience and hope that will excite them. I don't, I don't want to sort of water it down or you know not dumb it down i guess in a way so that's that's audiences but what about um venues does your work ever change dependent on where you know it's going to be put on yeah i think it does i think it does but i think it does in a way that's kind of less perceptible Mm -hmm. you know really you're just trying to have an encounter with the play and get excited about that rather than go oh well i don't think we should do this at the young Vic this is more like a maybe or you know that's not really a national theatre idea that's more of a but actually the way uh, the the theatre that it's on really does affect the production but in more subtle ways I mean the auditorium does mm. if you're directing a play I you know did a production of Edward II in the Olivier well the Olivier is a very different space to the young Vic is a very different space to the Almeida is a very different space to the Royal Court upstairs so the, 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 the room that you're making the show in affects it in many different ways and then of course the way that it's um, produced and the relationships you have with specific artistic directors. You know, when you're making a show, you often talk to the artistic director, and and it's not that they give you particular parameters or steers, but you're part of a creative conversation that affects things. Um, so yeah, there's there's lots of kind of subtle ways that affect um, that affect how a show comes out. I think when it comes to different venues and different countries or different cities as well. Do you, do you think there's any difference there between putting on a show in the UK and putting on a show in Europe? You spoke about how how Europe can influence your work potentially in the future. Well, one of the things one of the things you're thinking about, I think, as a director when you like sign up for a gig. Mm. I mean, one you're thinking like if you're talking about directing plays, you think, what's the play? Is the play uh, the right material for me, or is a good fit for me, or something I'm interested in? But then the other thing directors I think really think about are conditions. 
So, you know, um, things like do you get to workshop the production in advance? Do you get to get in a room with actors or um, in the case, as it is here at the Young Vic, with directors and try out ideas and test things? And um, uh, that, that's, that can affect hugely, in a hugely positive way, um, how uh, production turns out. But also, like, how long do you get to rehearse it? Mm. How long do you get to tech it? How much time? It's, you know, it's a really... Uh, unbelievably important and um, often quite stressful <laughs> transition from going into from being in the rehearsal room to putting something on stage and adding all the sound adding all the light having the complete set for the first time having the costumes for the first time how, how much time do you get to tech it and think how many previews do you get um, so th those kind of conditions are really important to directors and if you haven't got enough you know for me if I haven't got enough rehearsal time or the budget is too small or you know then you sort of think oh I think this is uh, this is not going to work so the conditions with which you make which, in which you make work is really important okay so the rehearsal room then you mentioned that what, any yeah. kind of what is your rehearsal room like how do you manage and facilitate uh, the rehearsal process are there any kind of T particular techniques which you enjoy or, or, or universal regardless of what production you're, you're making? Well, it kind of changes. I mean, yes, it changes um, show to show. You mm. know, the different style of a play will require different things. But also, it, you know, it changes all the time um, uh, as you get older and try different things. I mean, that's the other thing that directors are really obsessive about, I think, as well as conditions. It's like process. <laughs> You know, so directors always like, "What's your process?" Oh, you know, what do you do on the first day of rehearsal? And 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 and, and certainly, uh, I think I'm like most directors who are often trying to change things or evolve things. I mean, like for example, I used to spend the first um, week of rehearsals like sat around the table, and maybe we'd get up and we'd do little improvisations or little practical exercises. But a lot of the time, the actors were sat around the table, and you'd read things and and discuss it and. And um, and then I, uh, about, I don't know, I mean, about 2012, I just got sick of that. <laughs> and I just, so I haven't sat around the table since. And so at the moment, I really like to try and be really practical mm -hmm. right from the start, you know, which is, which I never used to do that. I, I quite like, I mean, there's all different kinds of brilliant actors and, and different actors need different things and have different processes themselves but I often like um, actors who really love to roll up their sleeves and just jump in there right from the start you know kind of shoot first sounds and, quite fun yeah exactly so, so, so more and more I like to try and um, you know run bits of the play really early on and set up exercises that get people just playing it and interacting really soon in rehearsals. And I used to think, I used to think, oh, actors would be really scared of that because actors would turn up on the first day. They don't really know what the characters are. They don't know the other people in their room, so they're not going to want to, you know, run around trying to kill each other or have sex with each other, whatever, whatever <laughs> is happening in the play. Um, and the plays I do, it's normally like people trying to kill each other, have sex with each other. Um, I'll ask you about that later, but again, we'll get on to that. But the, um, but actually, you know, often a lot of actors, of course, what they want to do is act, and mm. often a great way to kind of um, break, bust through, um, break through kind of nerves and barriers is to just get up and do it. And often there's something really great when you get actors to do stuff really early on. 
when they they haven't had a chance to really think about what they're doing because it's great for me as a director because the actors will do stuff that you never thought of mm. but what's really great is that actors do stuff that they've never thought of you know i remember on uh, in when we rehearsed Edward the second we sort of ran the first third of the play on like day three of rehearsals and we set up a long rolling improvisation where at the start of Edward the second uh, this play by Christopher Marlowe you have uh, the characters are really in different camps you kind of have the king's camp uh, well, the king is a bit camping over the second because <laughs> he has a, a gay lover and they are kind of running riot around the kingdom. And then you have these group of uh, barons and nobles elsewhere going, what the hell are we going to do about this guy? Mm-hmm. This is um, this is out of control. And so I remember we put the, the barons and earls um, in the kind of uh, tea room and kitchen in this rehearsal oh, space. Yeah. And we had the um, uh, John Heffernan and Carl Soller playing Edward and Gaveston. They mm-hmm. had their kind of um, court in the main room. And we set up this long sort of, I say improvisation, but actually they were playing the scenes and the text from the play and it spilt everywhere. It spilt out into the, um, into the back garden of the rehearsal room. Wow. I, I don't know if this, I don't know if this is, I think this is true, um, but uh, Covenant Holbrook-Smith, who was playing uh, this character called Mortimer, apparently went out into the street with a broadsword. Because we had, because one thing that if you want to try and get practical right from the start and, and get things up on their feet and get them moving, it's quite hard to do that in a, uh, an empty room. Yeah. So, I, you know, raided the National Theatre props and costumes store. That's fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we had loads of stuff. So in, in, in a way that's, that's almost... I was going to say flippant and silly, but it's not really silly. It's more sort of playful and almost sort of childlike. You get, you say, "Hey, let's let's dress up and let's do the play," you know. Well, I just tell you okay, first what yeah. happened. I tell you first yeah. what happened about Covenant. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know this is true, but I think it's true. I have to ask Covenant. But he went, he went out onto the street with a broadsword <laughs> chasing someone. I think he also had like a gold breastplate on or something. And apparently, someone called the police or something. I don't know if that's true. Though. And I think on. It's your fault though, if it is true. Exactly. I mean, it would have been bad. He'd been like shot. <laughs> by police marksmen, um, but well, yeah, they do—they do—they do have understudies at the uh, the national. So you know, and, I mean, on the second day of rehearsals for Measure for Measure, we, we lost re- five members of the cast. We lost five members of the cast. <laughs> we ran, we ran the whole play, and I, I, and and I think the actors found that half sort of traumatic because I think they were sort of saying, "Fuck, what the hell was that? We, <laughs> we don't know what we're doing." and but also, I think they found it quite exciting. And are there actors that worked with you pre twenty twelve that now work with you again? And go wait a minute, this isn't what a Joe Hill Gibbons rehearsal room think, is like. I think a, I think a little bit. I think a little bit. Who I is think, this guy? I think um, I think um, I mean uh, Cobner Holbrook Smith is a really good example. I've worked with Cobner a lot. He's a great actor. But I did a, did a Brecht play with him at the Young Vic, yeah. and then I did the when we did the Changeling the first time in the Maria because we did it at the Young Vic mm-hmm. twice. We did it in the studio theatre and then we took it to the main house. That was definitely the exciting, sometimes painful, often crazy birth of me trying to work in a new way. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I certainly I certainly think, I mean, Cobbiner, who then went on to Edward II with me, then said after Edward II, oh, yeah, I kind of, um, I kind of get it a bit more now. <laughs> you seem a bit more in control of what you're doing. Whereas when we did it on the change thing, it was just like, wow, what the hell's going on? I think even if the actors think, I mean, you'd have to off the actors. I mean, maybe any, some, maybe some people who've been in those rehearsal rooms are sort of 
listening to this game. That was the worst day of my life. It didn't. And it contributed nothing to the performance. I've now got a criminal record. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think, I think even though the actors feel a little bit, sometimes a little bit exposed or a little bit like, you, you, you know, you're making us act out scenes and we don't know what we're doing. It's, I, th- I don't think, the funny thing is I don't think actors think, what's the point of that? Because it means that they're acting straight away. And that's what actors, I guess, get the most from acting. I mean, maybe maybe the danger is people think it's all very well running around in the back garden of a rehearsal space. But what are we actually going to do on stage? Joe, uh, you don't know this, but you are actually uh, the director of my favourite play which Great. was on at the Young Vic um, about five years ago. Now, sorry, just to clarify here, are we saying favourite production or favourite play? <laughs> well, uh, it's it's a play that I read okay, and okay. really enjoyed. I, I get it. Just and the only on. production just, I've seen is yours, actually. Well, there we are, though. <laughs> it must be. So your, the, it's your favourite production of your favourite. It's my favourite production. Well, thank you. That it's also the only production I've ever seen uh, of The Girlfriend Experience, and I'm actually rereading it uh, Oh, right yeah, now. yeah, yeah. And I've actually got a list here of other plays uh, directed by you at the Young Vic, which I have seen. The Beautiful of Lanand, Twice, The Girlfriend Experience, The Glass Menagerie, The Changing, both productions, uh, and Measure for Measure. Now, that list, do you see anything which links those plays? Is there any kind of themes which brings those plays together, or do you just pick a play which you enjoy, which you like, and then you'll make a production uh, of it? I think there are... I mean, it's funny. I, I think there are things that uh, link them. I, I, When I... Um, I remember when I got to meet Martin McDonough, when... I was preparing the production of um, The Beauty Queen of Linan. And I said, oh, the next show I'm doing is The Glass Menagerie. And he said, uh, very, very sort of playfully, ironically, he said, oh, well, that's the same play. (laughs) Um, You know, both of them have these um, uh, children uh, struggling to express or um, realise their sexuality with Mm. these sort of dominant um, mother figures in the case of those two characters. They're sort of, I always think of them sort of in the uh, sex tragedy kind mm. of ballpark, which is not to say they're all tragedies, but they're all... I mean, I remember I, I did a... Uh, I directed an opera with E.N.O. Uh, called Powder Her Face, which I really loved doing. And I was reading quite a lot about opera. And um, I read this really good book. I think it's called The Queen's Throat. I think. Um, And it's talking about opera and it's talking about how opera is, uh, one of the themes of opera is kind of this theme of um, love against the law that you often have these uh, characters who have um, uh, lusts and desires and loves which in some way are uh, are transgressive or in some way other characters or the, the broader society is saying that's not cool. Um, and that often results in tragedy for that mm. character. And in opera, they're often, um, you know, uh, for better and for worse, often um, female characters are kind of mm. destroyed. Um, but, you know, Edward II and and, uh, and and Beatrice in The Changeling and Tom in The Glass Menagerie, mm. Laura in The Glass Menagerie, um, uh, uh, Maureen in, in The Beauty yeah. Queen. These are all characters whose uh, desires and... Um, sexual desires in conflict with the cultural society sort of destroy them. There's and a lot about repression, isn't there, these, the, in these plays? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and the sort of theme of how hard it is to 
um, be a human and have a body and have uh, feel desires and how that um, can destroy you, I guess, is often what links the plays. Mm. Um, it was just start- why that is yeah. the case, we're, 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 let's not go there now. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just starting for me to sort of see these plays written down chronologically and thinking to myself, oh, actually, yes, the girlfriend experience, that is a, um, you know, a verbatim play about um, sex workers or the beauty queen of Lanan and, and what we've just discussed about it and the, the pressure in the glass menagerie as well. And then, of course, uh, the changing and measure for measure that they do seem to be plays which are very fervently about sexuality and, and repress sexuality. And so that, that is something which perhaps draws you uh, to a play is it in terms of themes of a play or, or you just think that those are good stories independently. No, of I, th- I, th- I think that, mm. that that's probably fair. I think mm. that is a theme in all of those, you know. And often if plays are about sexuality, they're often about repression mm. because they're about, you know, um, plays generate a lot of their energy, of course, through opposition and conflict. So often, you know, if, if, if plays involve love, they often involve someone or a group of people saying that's not allowed so what else draws you to a play then what do you do you see do you read plays often and think actually that would be that would be a good play to put on i can i can pitch that in my head i can see just exactly how i'd want to, that stage and, and who would be in it and, and what it would look like yeah it's hard to say really because as much as those plays perhaps have common themes mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know in, in some respects they're, they're all very different i suppose you um you read a play and you have to try and have an instinctive reaction to it as to whether you feel it's the right thing. I mean, for me, that's absolutely not about having any kind of complete vision. Mm. It's not like you read it and I go, oh, yes, I can see the stage or I can see the, you know, (laughs) of course, images and ideas and associations will, will dance around your head when you read a play. But normally you're just going off a kind of reaction of like yes this is this is something i'm interested in or excited about and then there's a long 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 process to bring it to the stage i mean i work quite slowly and i work in a process that involves lots of other people you know um a set designer or um i work with a dramaturg called zoe svensson mm-hmm. a lot and a lighting designer and sound designer assistant directors associate directors um and so the actually how it turns out on stage is part of a long process. It's not, I never have a complete vision at the start, not at all, um, right. in fact. But but yes, you're trying to have some sort of instinctive response. And I suppose, um, I suppose I'm drawn to plays which have, uh, I guess, a kind of theatricality to them. I, you know, I mean, that's a good idea, isn't it? If it's making <laughs> theatre. But I mean, I, you know, certainly at the moment anyway, plays that tend to be very uh, realistic or literal, uh, or yeah, it, which is to say that they can only kind of be presented in, in one way, which is very kind of uh, naturalistic or realistic. I tend not to be into so much. But, but you know what? You never know. I mean... You, it, it, it's really boring to say, well, I do this sort of thing or I make this sort of work and you want to keep evolving and changing. So so who knows, yeah. And what about that creative team that you mentioned, those people around you which help to put a show together, the, the designer and then you mentioned Zoe who uh, is often dramaturg in your, in your work. Do they come with different views which you might not have seen and you think, oh, actually, that's interesting or, or that's different yeah. or that's not my view, that's not my vision? Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know... Um, there's a long conversation mm. that goes on, really. That's a f- yeah. I mean, it, there's a lot of talking that goes on into preparing a 
production. I mean, so take take measure for measure. Um, the production's made up of a sort of, in the same way the play is, a kind of network of kind of related ideas. And those ideas come into fruition through a long process of me working with Jazz, the assistant mm-hmm. director that you mentioned, working with Zoe, the dramaturg, working with um, uh, um, Miriam uh, Buter, the set designer, um, working with James Farncombe, lighting designer, Paul Arditi, sound designer, Nikki Gillibrand, costume designer, <laughs> with, uh, Imogen Knight, uh, the um, choreographer and movement director, always has a big impact on things. And so, yeah, l- uh, there's lots of different views. And normally, I guess broadly how it works is through conversations mm. And, a, and, and you start, I think it's really good to start off with very broad ranging conversations. I mean, I try to, I, I try to say to um, young directors who are, uh, you know, maybe I uh, encounter in, in, in workshops and things around the director's program at the Young Vic is, is that when you're starting out looking at a play, uh, the first question I think to ask is, is not how do we do it, but what is it? You know, that at the very basic level, you're trying to, I mean, Measure for Measure is a really good example. Just looking at the plane going, why Why is it written like this? There's so many brilliant but strange and and unnerving um, choices made by Shakespeare. Made, but why is it written like this? And if you go into early meetings just thinking about uh, how do we do it, mm-hmm. you know, if your first meeting with the designer is, okay, I think the set should look like this, or do you think it, that's really kind of uh, limiting and and um, kind of narrowing that you have quite a broad ranging question trying to work out what the hell it's about and then and then the after that kind of first phase I normally get a bit of a sense or a steer on okay I think the play is about this type of thing this is the kind of this is how I think maybe we should think about what the play is or uh, and then encourage people to sort of feed into that but I suppose ultimately you're the director the, the decisions stop with you or do they or don't they yeah 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 okay. and that that's both that's both a sort of a pleasure and a pain you know <laughs> because you're you're ultimately you ultimately you have um the final call mm. and um that's kind of cool because mm. you sort of get to decide okay yeah i think we should do it like this or not you know um, um but that's also gives you many many sleepless nights but you know that said, I can't emphasise how it's incredibly collaborative. And, and, you know, when you were saying earlier about does it make a difference uh, which building you work in? Yes, I think that makes a bit of a difference. I mean, it certainly makes a difference um, which collaborators you have. So mm. you could do the same play uh, with a different designer, you know, and different movement director, different dramaturg, and it would come out differently. Mm. So, you know, as much as I'm kind of like giving the process direction in that you're sort of pointing, going, I think we're <laughs> going to go this way. Uh, we're going to go, go up the north face of the mountain, follow me. People For those are, listening, Joe just did some pointing. I just did some pointing there. That's, <laughs> that's directing, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, everyone is, 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 is checking in their ideas. That's really important. What about your relationship with the actors then? I mean, do you, are you, do you have them at arm's reach? Are you, how, how distant do you need to be with them? Can you be their friend or are you... Um, more sort of isolated than that. I know that from speaking with other directors, it can be quite a lonely job, and the rehearsal room can be quite a lonely place as well. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's. I mean, I sort of. I mean, some. I, I kind of, in general, as a default position, I kind of want people to feel comfortable. Mm. 
Um, which is a funny thing in rehearsals because because um, maybe in order to for an actor to um, you know crack open a particular part of a character maybe that won't be particularly fun for them or will be challenging mm. for them not necessarily because anything I'm doing maybe sometimes it's because something I'm doing but often you know processes involve um, uh, hard times you know what I mean um, but in general I kind of want people to feel comfortable and, and certainly so they can talk to me and express you know anxieties to me or come with ideas to me um, and and I try to keep those lines of communication really open with the actors. But then, then there is another side to it. There's certain problems and things that, that the actors can't necessarily solve, you know. I mean, actors often come up with really good ideas about, you know, all, all elements of the production. But if there's some sort of big conceptual problem you've got about, like, I don't really know what order to put those scenes in or whether to use the set like this or that, often the actors, because of their position inside the, the drama, are, are not always best placed to answer that. And um, so sometimes you'll sort of, um, at the end of rehearsals, you'll say, yeah, that was great and that was good and the actors will go home. Mm. And this was often the case on Measure for Measure because, you know, I was really, really happy with how that project turned out. But mm. I found it, I found it unbelievably demanding to direct because the, the play was so hard and and the actors would go home and I would sit around in rehearsals and go, what are we going to do? We're fucked. It doesn't work. The ideas don't work. You know, we're finished. And, it, you know, I didn't really feel that I could do that in front of the actors or want to do that in front of the actors. Nice. And, of course, you know, I'm sure the actors say to me, well, that was really great. That was a really great day. And they go home and go, I don't know what I'm doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so, you know, you, you're not always completely transparent about everything. So does it make any difference if you are pals already with the with the cast, if you know them from other projects or you know them from from your social life? So make it easier or harder? I think it, I think it makes it easier. Yeah. I th you know, there were quite a few people like Zubin Vala, who um, played the the Duke in Measure for Measure. I've worked with Zubin a lot before. I've worked with um, uh, Romola before at the Royal Court. I've worked, you know, knew Tom from being at school. And I think, I think, I think two things happen when you go into rehearsals with someone who you're kind of friendly with too. Uh, one good thing is you can be more honest with each other. You can mm. be more direct with each other. I mean, I remember Zubin and I having conversations about our families and our fathers and things trying to get behind this sort of mad paternalistic figure in Vienna of the Duke I mean I told I told Zubin stuff I don't think I've told anyone else uh, <laughs> and he told me stuff which I'll tell you now no but you know we we, 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 we were quite we were quite open with each other but I but and and I felt I could be that way with um, Romola and Tom too mm. but also what happens as well actually is your your relationship for that time mm adjusts slightly as well it okay. slightly recalibrates itself because because you need to be the boss a little bit mm. and the actors kind of need you to be the boss a little bit and yeah. and and that you know so it kind of recalibrates a bit and then sort of if you certainly if you have a good time on the show anyway it just goes back to normal so end of a day in the rehearsal room can you all go for a drink or do you need to do your own thing you need to be separate you need to isolate yourself from them 
you 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 can go for a drink, but you know, often often actors have busy lives or uh, and families or whatever, and they have to go. And and mainly on measure for measure, I would spend most of the evenings just freaking the fuck out, <laughs> um, and and you know, gathering the, the the team around me and saying, okay, is this working? Is that not working? How are we doing this? You know, um, but you know, in the end. Uh, just from my point of view, mm-hmm. I was really, really happy with how Measure Measure turned out, and that a lot of the the thinking and the ideas that we drew out of the play all did seem to, um, for me anyway, come together in the production. So it was good in the end, but it was, it was quite hard. <laughs> it was quite hard getting it there. Would you like to do more Shakespeare? Yeah, I would. All right then. Next question. Um, you said. Uh, about five minutes ago that you directed an opera which is yeah. um, is that something you'd like to do more of as well? Mm. I had a I had a really great time doing the opera yeah I mean I've only I've, I've only done one and I had a really good time uh, so I'd love to do more yeah okay uh, any other kind of art forms that uh, that inform your your theatre making are there any kind of exhibitions that you might go to or music that you might listen to films that you might watch that you think aha there's something in that which can sort of seep into a production I'm making or, or that's a great idea that's a great aesthetic that sh- which can hopefully be in a Joe Hill Gibbons production in the future yeah for sure I mean I, it, it, cinema is always a big mm-hmm. influence isn't it a big influence on, on everyone and and often you know you end up drawing on like everyone does you end up drawing on strange memories of films you saw when you were young or TV programs you watched and and certainly film and certainly music and listening to music like you know when I work with um, Imogen Knight the movement director often what we do and this happens with Paul Aditi the sound director as well as we swap music mm-hmm. you know as we say well I think it's you know what about this tune what about this and sometimes you're thinking about um, music that will specifically end up in the show but often you're also just um, uh, trying to work out more broadly the kind of tone or feel of the production. And I quite like it. I quite like using music in shows that other people bring in, mm-hmm. that, that, that the actors bring in or often the imaging. You know, so there was this um, uh, Gazelle Twin. Are they called Gazelle Twin? Yeah, I think they're called Gazelle, Gazelle Twin song called The Belly of the Beast, mm-hmm. which we used at the start of Measure for Measure. But that, that was Imogen's song. Imogen mm-hmm. brought that in. And I guess I like that because you know if you if you if you use music that you really love, if I really use my favorite bands or whatever, yeah. then then whenever I listen to that song, it would kind of be ruined because <laughs> I'm thinking about the play. So I quite like it when. Um, so did you know that music before you used it in uh, Measure for Measure? No, I didn't. I didn't know the belly fruit. What else did we have in Measure for Measure? We had. Um, I can't even remember what the rap song was. It was uh, who was it? But that was something that. Um, uh, uh, Paul Arditi just threw in. We were doing, we were doing, <laughs> um, you know, measure for measure in the set. We had this kind of back room, so yeah. there were two spaces. There was this front stage, which, which you know, all the audience could see, and there was this back room, which sometimes opened up and you could see into it, and sometimes was closed. And we, you, you know, you had to watch a live camera feed, a video feed, to see what was going on in the back room. But which meant in rehearsals that we had this kind of big wall of flats across. The rehearsal mm-hmm. room. So you know, behind it, we were doing the stuff in the in the second um, backstage space, and I remember sort of shouting over to the 
shouting over the wall to Paul Odetti and I was saying, yeah, we can, we can have some rap music, rap music, because we're in the middle of kind of jamming a scene, you know, uh-huh. the actors were, 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 you know, were acting and I was going, yeah. And uh, I think Imogen put on some some British hip hop and I was going, no, it's got to be American, it's American hip hop. And he put that song on and it, and it stayed in the show. And it worked. And yeah. it fitted. Yeah. Brilliant. But So with Measure for Measure and the, the, the use of film in that production, is that something that which interests you for future uh, shows that you'd like to incorporate more uh, recording, more film in, in, in your productions? I think I think um, film can be very exciting in a theatre context, mm. yeah. I mean, you know, the guy who uh, I worked with, the video designer who I worked with on Edward II and then on um, Measure for Measure is a brilliant video designer called Chris Kondek. And Chris is uh, American, and he used to work with the Worcester Group in 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 the States, but now he lives in Berlin and works in a lot of German language theatre. And it was really great for me working with him because when I was was preparing for Edward II at the National mm-hmm. Theatre, and I was saying to him, I was saying to them, "Yeah, we need a video designer." And I kind of want well, there's this guy actually, there's this guy called Chris Kondek, and I've seen his productions in productions that he works on in Berlin, and he often does stuff where they shoot the actors in the wings or backstage or they pre-record films from the rehearsal room and they just put them in the action and and I was saying we've got to get someone like Chris Kondek and it I mean it's really stupid but it took me quite a long while to go oh maybe that person is Chris Kondek Mm -hmm. because when they're in another country and I guess I was so so influenced by the work I'd seen Chris do it's kind of like oh we can't ask him but we did ask him (laughs) and he came over and he said yes and now we've worked together a couple of times he's fantastic I also want to ask you a question which I guess you've been asked a million times already uh, so apologies in advance which is about the use of sex dolls in Measure for Measure yeah where did that idea come from how did that germinate I mean for people who didn't see the show I guess just taking the opening um, of the show for a moment that um, uh, the lights came up on the stage to to reveal I think we ended up having a hundred and nine um, inflatable sex dolls both male and female um, on and the where stage are they now well, they're all in storage okay. they're all in storage in the in 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 the in the um, in the event of us uh, <laughs> you know doing doing the production again okay great so with the amount of people who said to me sort of half jokingly they want one of the dolls <laughs> it's kind of really disturbing um, but yeah the idea for having these dolls um, the idea came uh, from the desire I guess to create a kind of double image that on the one hand um, the play uh, is set in Vienna and Vienna has this um uh, problem or at least uh, the Duke seems to think it's a problem or Angelo certainly thinks it's a problem um, uh, with its uh, red light district so there's all these um, uh, prostitutes and their clients um, and creating this kind of environment of um, uh, uh, of kind of commercialised um, sex and that being a I guess mainly a kind of moral problem or spiritual problem for Vienna, although there are these references to venereal disease in it as well. It's a sort of a practical problem too. Um, And so on the one hand, the dolls were um, expressive of that, Mm -hmm. of uh, 
that you look at those dolls and on the one hand you know when you've got 109 on stage it's a bit like a kind of uh one of those ball pools you know that kids <laughs> play in, you know that it's kind of like a fun space or an exciting space or a playful space but at the same time it's the dolls are really disturbing and uh depressing actually mm. you know because you think about um the men that use them and you think about what that says about how the men feel about um women that they have sex with these sort of inanimate objects you know um so so the fact that they were a kind of um uh fun playful yet also kind of horrific and disturbing image seems seemed to work for this idea of the red light district in vienna and i mean the reason i wanted to start with that and have so many of them on stage is i kind of really wanted the red light district to be uh, a problem you know it, the nature of Shakespeare's plays is you can interpret them in different ways mm. and, and a measure and measure perhaps more than any other play one of the reasons it's so challenging is everything's written to have multiple meanings or at least to have available multiple interpretations you know is the red light district fun is it terrible is, is, is this character this or that but I kind of wanted it to be uh, a problem the red light district, district to be a problem and, and it's kind of like um that Angelo is trying to find a solution to that problem. Now, Angelo's solution might be awful, but uh, it was important for me in this production that he is reacting to actually a genuine problem and that the Duke um, abdicates and leaves him in charge and leaves him to sort out this awful problem that he doesn't know how to sort out. And so the fact that the stage was completely covered in sex dolls, the fact that you couldn't really stage the play because there were <laughs> sex dolls everywhere, um, was a kind of practical... Um, expression of that problem but um as i said it, it was really important for me that it, it functioned as a kind of double image it wasn't just about the red light district for me more profoundly it was an image of um hell the more mm. um i worked on the play the more i discovered um slightly to my surprise actually that the play uh, not just on a level of story or character, but on a level of um, form, you know, what scenes were written and what kind of scenes in what order was completely shot through with uh, references to Christianity. And in a way, there's a way of looking at the play that it's a kind of meditation on a religious problem, that human beings are uh, born uh, from a sinful act and we are born sinners. We are, you know, uh, have original sin in us. And that um, for uh, lots of Christian thinkers that that um, uh, that influenced the the um, um, the church heading into Shakespeare's time, of course, um, sex was inherently sinful and evil. Um, and and so there's there's. Uh, the sex in the play is also a spiritual problem. Mm -hmm. It's also a, a, a problem of um, uh, uh, sin, really. And I was kind of researching this and was looking at all these Renaissance paintings of The Last Judgment. Um, so they were these kind of triptych kind of panel mm -hmm. paintings and uh, of which there are many, many different incredible um, versions uh, or paintings on that theme but often on the right side of the painting as you look at it there would be an image of hell because the painting would be the last judgment and often you would have um, 
a Christ-like figure in the middle and uh, uh, people in the middle panel either sort of being ushered to the left or to the right. And the people who go to the left of the painting as you look at it often go up to heaven and the people on the right go into hell. So this question which is absolutely central to uh, measure for measure of judgment and sin is played out in these in these pictures. And when you look at those pictures, your eye, and I can't, don't think this is just me, immediately goes to the hell bits, mm -hmm. the hell corner of the picture. When the people go up to heaven, they go up to heaven, um, and they're all sort of fully clothed, mm. and um, you know it's kind of a it's kind of a problem in a way. Um, it's much easier. Uh, to describe what happens in hell than it is to describe what happens in heaven. <laughs> so you've kind of got these kind of dudes with beards kind of sat around talking often in heaven. So your eye, of course, immediately goes to these this kind of red inferno mm. glowing in the other corner. And, and almost without exception in these pictures, everyone in hell is naked. It's very hot there. It's very hot there, yes. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, that's why we're naked in this, uh, in this incredibly hot recording booth. Um, but it, it's... Um, uh, and so you have often these extraordinary uh, hallucinogenic, disturbing images of these falling naked bodies in this kind of inferno. Um, and for me, really, what the dolls were as much of as an image of um, uh, uh, the red light district is they were an image of that. They were an, an, an image of hell. And there's a, there are many moments in the play, I think, uh, where scenes in the play are patterned to reference um, parts of the Bible. Um, and, and certainly in the latter stages of the play, um, you've got, um, uh, I think, references to this kind of medieval idea uh, uh, called the harrowing of hell, of Christ going into hell and redeeming sinners. Um, uh, which I think the prison scenes in mm. Measure Measure have some, in Act 4, have some relationship to that. Um, and also as well, the final scene, uh, it, it, it has many references to when the Duke returns, it has references to the second coming, but it really seems to, um, yeah, it seems to be a, 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 a playing out of the last judgment. Not only is it the last judgment of the play, it's a reference to, you know, the end of days in, in Christianity. So it felt to me that making that um, religious imagery and that religious fear and that religious anxiety about sin and justice, making that somehow um, uh, visible and, uh, and tangible on stage was kind of um, uh, important to me. And, and that's not to say that people necessarily need to pick up on that. Some people watching it, depending on what your, you know, um, your religious background is some people would see that stuff immediately mm. if i went as a as a punter mm. rather than someone who re researched it a lot preparing the production uh, i don't think i would have understood it quite like that but it's more that when you look at those last judgment paintings um those kind of hell panels and the fear and the terror and the nudity and the is really striking the subconscious and is really um, kind of ringing, ringing bells in our subconscious about sin and fear and guilt, and it felt that I wanted to bring that energy or that atmosphere onto the stage. And then it's funny, you know, you look at the sex dolls, and of course they all have these um, open mouths, and they look like screaming mm -hmm. lost souls in hell. 
And then when Imogen Knight, the movement director, came in and started getting the actors to throw them around, um, because they're kind of on another level, they're kind of a bit like big balloons, they would kind of fly or float around, and then we had our image of the lost souls falling into hell. So, um, so yeah. Brilliant. Joe Hill Gibbons, thank you very much for coming in for a chat this afternoon. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting names in theatre, subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.